This is Nate Laux, and you're listening to the Summer Friends Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a crazy month for us all, I'm sure. We've had Halloween and the election and Thanksgiving. I hope they all turned out as wonderful for you as you had hoped. Here at the PAC Center in State Street, we had a busy month as well. We had our biggest fundraiser ever for the PAC Center to help raise money for the hungry and lonely in LaPorte County. We raised over $50,000 in that campaign and had well over 100 people give to it. So thank you so much if you're listening and you gave to this campaign. You helped make it an incredible day. I'm very excited about today's guest. She's a friend and a fellow State Streeter who does really important work in our community. Jen Walker visited our makeshift studio at State Street Community Church about a month ago. We had a long conversation about her journey to becoming a police officer and detective. In the interview, she educates me on what she does as a sex crime investigator. We talked about methods and misconceptions she sees. I have to tell you though, I was exhausted after this interview. What Jen does is not easy. She has a job that few understand and appreciate, and even fewer would have the mental and emotional energy to do each and every day. So I appreciate her and what she does, and I'm grateful that she was willing to inform you and me about this difficult subject. I do want to give a warning that we talk about some heavy topics. I have no doubt that there are some people listening to this podcast that have been sexually assaulted. I am so sorry. You are not alone. If you want to talk to someone anonymously, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. I want to also say, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. These conversations mean more to me than you might realize. I also want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing and subscribing. Thank you for telling your friends and your family. It means a great deal to me. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to your new summer friend, Jennifer Ryan Walker. My wife is a huge podcast listener and I've convinced her to listen to this podcast, but most of her podcasts are crime podcasts. Okay. So she was very excited that I was <laughs> going to interview you. And she's given me a ton of questions. Oh, good. Because she's very interested in, as she's hearing about different cases and things like this, how it how it all comes together. Sometimes everything just ends up working out. Most of the times it doesn't in that it's a lot of work. It's a lot of mm-hmm. leads going one way or when you, I don't know if you've ever tried to Google you, but uh, when you Google you, a bunch of mug shots come up under the oh, Google great. image search because of uh, <laughs> really? all, all of the cases that you've done okay. and you've been in the paper and mm-hmm. they've put a mug shot. I, I not t- of me. Let's be, let's there, clear no, that up. There's no, there's none of you. But I, I have to tell you though, I was getting slightly cynical, a bit depressed as I was looking through all of the different stories. It has to wear on you after a while to go into this world so often and try to do the best that you can and feel like you're sometimes swimming against upstream. But I want to say too, I couldn't find anything online that interviewed you or talked about what you do. And I hope most listeners realize that we have to be grateful that you do do what you do, because it's something that I think very few people could do and even fewer would want to do mm-hmm. because it's such hard work. Right. You were a patrol officer for a few years. For three and a half years, yep. And then became a detective? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And you've been a and, detective ever since? Yeah, I've been a detective for nine years now. Since I've been a detective, I've specialized in crimes against the person, which is things that happen to you personally. Uh, For example, being battered, being sexually assaulted, things like that, as opposed to if your house is burglarized, that's considered a property crime. Someone steals money from your bank account, that's a financial crime. I do crimes against the person. Are your your cases usually longer lasting than other cases? Yes. I would say they take longer to investigate than, well, not necessarily longer than a property crime, because sometimes it takes them a a long time to figure out who the suspect is. I'm typically, in my cases, I typically know who the suspect is, but it's just, it takes a long time because for the most part, these types of crimes are reported after the fact. It's really, really unusual for me to get a case where it just happened. I shouldn't say really, really unusual, but it's really the minority of my cases. Most of my cases are against children, and most of them are reported months later, if not years later. So that takes time to you know, see what you can find out given the, the time that's passed and everything. Take me through an investigation that you would do if someone approached you with a sexual assault. Where does it start? What do you do? How do you manage an investigation? Well, it depends. There's a big difference between investigating something that just happened and something that happened years ago or months ago. The number one thing being that initially on any sex offense that has just happened, your immediate concern is for their safety, not only for you know, from that offender, whatever, but also for their health. If it's within 72 hours or in some cases, 96 hours, you want to get them medically evaluated, have a sexual assault exam done by a nurse specifically trained for sexual assault examinations. And then there are also pediatric SANES that are trained for prepubescent victims because they kind of have to have their own protocol that they have to follow. I try to, if that's the case, if they're going to go to the hospital and have an exam done, I try to just be present because the nurse will typically interview them and, you know, find out what happened because that's relevant to where they're going to look for evidence and and where they're going to take the swabs and what, what they're looking for. I'll try to sit there and just let the nurse, the same nurse, do their thing, and I'll take notes of what they're telling the nurse. I think that's less less people that they're having to tell their story to. I'll just, from that account, then realize what, what other things I want answered. And like I said, especially if, if it's just happened, I will wait for my interview to be a couple days later once they're not so completely in that traumatized space. Plus, if they have injuries, sometimes the um, the injuries that change over time, you might not have a bruise show up immediately, but two days later, then you'll be able to start to see it. So we'll take that opportunity to photograph things and injuries and um, take a full recorded statement from the person. If it's a child, typically, well, we do forensic interviews of children, which is a special way of interviewing kids that's non-leading. And so we typically take them to Doonbrook or have their parent or guardian take them to Doonbrook. We, as well as DCS, who they always have an investigation anytime something has happened with a child, will observe as the forensic interviewer does that in, in a separate room. And we'll observe it via the, like a closed caption kind of set up on the TV. But once the interview is done, then we'll proceed from there as far as developing, okay, 
who are people that I could talk to. It's very relevant. If I if I tell you that somebody says, you know, my stepdad molested me from the ages of 10 to 13, I'm not going to have DNA for that right off the bat. And more than likely, stepdad's going to say, no, I didn't. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you can try to get a confession, but you can't hang your hat on that. It's very relevant to look at things such as the child's behavior. Did something change in that child's behavior at that time? Did their grades change? And some kids don't. Some kids like are going through horrible abuse and still are getting like straight A's. But you still look. Did they start acting out at that time? and start sneaking out or cutting themselves or do doing something that shows they were in distress. Also, did they tell someone? Which a lot of times, if it's never come out, more than likely the person they told was another kid, a friend or something. But that is relevant because if stepdad is saying, you know, no, I didn't, she's just saying that now because she doesn't want to have to come over to our house because I'm strict. Really, then, so she's been planning this since she was 13 and told her best friend about it at, at a slumber party. You know, that that is relevant. It depends on the case. Every case is different, and you have to determine where you can go with your investigation and what things you can look at to corroborate whether, like I said, you start from a place of believing that person, but corroborate what happened. What do you do if someone comes to you and they're reporting something where they don't remember the full story or they get one of the details wrong about the story, but you think that in general, the victimization did happen? I mean, people remember things in different ways. And actually, there's a whole medical research and, and psychological kind of. research yeah, in, in the effects of trauma on memory and things. And like, uh, you'll have a victim that doesn't remember anything surrounding an incident, but just remembers one specific thing, like um, the the noise that was going on at the time, or or something up up on a windowsill that that they saw, that you know something specific like that. But um, oh, in it, it actually, I've heard it compared to trauma that, say, for example, a law enforcement officer might have in a shooting, where they will. I heard an account recently of a guy that survived being stabbed many, many times. And he, I believe he shot, yeah, he shot the suspect and he didn't hear the gunshots going at all off at all. He just heard the rounds, the empty cylinders, hit, you know, hitting the ground next to him, which is a much softer sound. So, I mean, it, sometimes the effects of trauma... Our are, brain just operates yeah. sometimes mm -hmm. in weird ways, especially when you're in the midst of trauma, I'm yeah. sure. And actually, if if I have someone that where the offense just happened, maybe the previous day or, or something, I'll put off their interview for a couple of days. I, I like to let a couple of days pass because all of those chemicals that flood your brain when you, when you go through trauma have a chance to kind of dissipate and you can get a much more sensible chronological account from them of of what happened otherwise they're going to be kind of all over the place with this happened and oh yeah i forgot to tell you that and then and they'll leave things out because they don't remember it at the time and is there a lot of people that false report rape or assault the minority of cases are false report it's not that i won't say that it never happens i've had you know cases that were false reporting and it occurs I would refer back to a man named David Lisak. He does a lot of research on non-stranger sexual assault. He, I believe, is the one that's done research that's shown that the occurrence of false reports is consistent with 
every crime. The number of people reporting burglary when they've, you know, it's an inside job and they and it's a false report is consistent with the number of cases that are uh, false claim of sexual assault. And we don't usually, we're not that skeptical of burglaries usually when they happen as sometimes we are with people who have claimed sexual assault or victimization. Right. Yeah. So let's say you've been working on a case sometimes for a year or more, or you've been just really trying to dive into this. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get to a point where I know this person has done this thing. I've just got to build the resume and the case to make sure that it's solid enough to prosecute? I mean, you start off the case in any crime, whether it's someone reporting that they are, their car was stolen, if somebody's reporting that they were sexually abused as a child, if somebody's reporting their house was burglarized, all of those things, you start off with the assumption that, okay, this crime that they're telling me about this is true. Then you work from there. If it's not true, there will be red flags that come up and <laughs> you'll recognize those. Uh, sometimes you might think things are red flags. Um, you just have to take in all the information and and be keep your mind open and not fully form your conclusion until you have as much information as you re- reasonably can have. Um, otherwise, you'll be ping-ponging back and forth like, oh, this makes it look more you know, this way, this makes it look more like this. You just, just take in all the information, gather as much as you can, and then it'll, the scales will tip usually pretty solidly one way or the other. Um, and enough to establish probable cause. A lot of times I will have enough information to believe that something had happened, but I don't have enough information to prove it. And so I, like, I know that this happened, but I can't charge the crime. Uh, or I, sometimes I have enough that I know this happened and I have enough to charge the crime. And then I still have to keep doing things on the case, you know, as it goes along. Cause you have, if someone's charged with a crime, uh, sometimes it's over a year, sometimes two years before it actually goes to trial. And they have all that time to come up with what their defense is. There's no way I can plug every hole in the boat, (laughs) you know, coming up to the case going to trial. So I don't even know sometimes what wild theory they're going to throw out as as a defense. And then I have to try to like, okay, show no, no, that's not true, you know, and and continue working the case, you know, a couple years after I've closed the case. Do you deal more with sexual assault of adults or children? I have way more child victims. Uh, I, I deal with both as far as that's my specialty, but we just get a lot more reports coming in of child victims, meaning under age 18. As far as the perpetrators, the, the someone that is, you said a pedophile, it's actually a pedophile. Everyone in the media and everything else says it wrong. Duly but the, noted. The root word is ped, like pediatrician. Sometimes I'll just say pedophile because then if people think I'm weird or if I'm <laughs> they think I'm saying it wrong if I say pedophile but I don't know like we talked about earlier I don't know exactly what makes someone do that but it is ultimately they're doing what they're doing because they are sexually attracted to children a lot of times a true pedophile is not attracted to one gender over the other they're attracted to the youth the, the child 
Uh, they might actually have more access if it's a male pedophile, which most of them are, might be able to have access to male children more just because that's more socially acceptable that, you know, people aren't going to leave their little girl alone with, with this guy or, or whatever. But they're not necessarily attracted to gender. It's just like the, the child and the youth that they're sexually attracted to. Someone that is a um, commits rape, obviously they're more attracted to appropriate age people, but they're after control over that person. And I think sometimes a lot of the research about rape is on people that are incarcerated in prisons. And those tend to be your stranger rapists. They were caught through DNA. Uh, DNA does not tend to be as much of a uh, issue in non-stranger rapes because typically both sides agree that the sexual activity happened. So the DNA doesn't really matter that much because yeah, yeah, we had sex. And she's like, I didn't want to. And he's like, yeah, it was consensual. So a lot of the research is on the, on the stranger rapist, which that's where you get all the stuff about it being about power and control and that kind of thing. Whereas in my experience, the non-stranger rapes are more about they wanted to do this sexual activity. And it's just selfishness and putting their desires over that of anyone else. It's just a dominance. And like yes. A, mm. And it, I mean, so it, that is about control. You're controlling that person's body by not listening to what they want. But that's similar to what a pedophile would do. They're dominating that child. But I don't really know. You'd have to talk to a psychologist to know all the differences. Now, and I'll tread lightly here because I don't know if I'm going to articulate this with the right sensitivity. And But... How would you describe the difference between someone that commits sexual assault and someone that's a pedophile? The similarities are that it's typically committed against someone they know. For sexual assault, it's usually someone that is an acquaintance. And when I say sexual assault, I, I do mean what's rape in, in our current code book. They've uh, changed the statutes to now include um, penetration by an object, including, you know, a finger or that kind mm -hmm. of thing as rape, um, to include oral assault with a mouth that is now considered rape. Um, all, all the different things that used to be called like deviant sexual conduct or uh, different, uh, names for the statutes, but it's all kind of under rape now. The only differences are then age wise. If you have like a 14 or 15 year old that's sexually assaulted, that's usually called sexual misconduct with a minor. If it's someone 13 or under that's sexually assaulted, that's called child molesting. You know, it could be rape and child molesting, but it's typically just charged as child molesting. So has it frustrated you to see all of the hot takes that are happening in the media and in punditry about sex crimes and investigating sex crimes when None of us are really doing it except a few of you. Does it frustrate you sometimes to hear some of the people making or acting as experts when they're really not? Well, yeah, a little bit. You know, overall, my opinion of sex crimes is that generally if someone tells you this and this and this happened when I was a kid, I believe that. And I never reported it. I never told anybody, whatever. I generally believe that. But at the same time, like I told you before, I like to have all the information before I draw a conclusion and all these different stories out in the media and everything. I don't have the information on those to draw a conclusion, but I, I it does bother me when people automatically dismiss a claim that, oh, all these women are saying, you know, this happened to them or whatever. They're all 
you know, it's just a man hating bash and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, I don't think that women who've been sexually assaulted or abused or men that have been sexually assaulted or abused are saying all men that do this are bad. They're saying there's a very select few guys that do this that are bad. And, and the research shows that. That it is, you know, a small, very small percentage of, and I said males because by and large it does tend to be males committing sexual assault, but there are a very small percentage of people doing most of the crimes. Um, most offenders have multiple victims. They're repeat offenders. Yes. And they're probation officers or parole officers that are t speaking with them about those issues when they're released from prison or, or even during prison. They go through programs where they're required to take a, a lie detector test and talk about the things they've done. They're finding that, yeah, if, if they've committed one, they have likely committed many, not been caught for them, but, you know, usually have other sex crimes in their past. Also, I think some people, maybe even in law enforcement, they'll look up someone's record and see that, oh, he's never, you know, no sex conviction. So that somehow makes them less likely to be guilty. But it's more common than not that a, a, someone that you find is guilty of a sex crime has other crimes in their criminal history, uh, whether it's alcohol offenses, um, batteries, even again, you know, just getting in a bar fight, that kind of thing. It's important for parents to tell their kids at age-appropriate stages about sex and sexual activity without terrifying your kids. Let them know there are people out there that touch kids in bad ways. Also, let them know if somebody does some something like this to you, then let's make a plan for who you would tell. Because kids do not usually tell their parents. So it's um, great to have a discussion beforehand about like who are the people that you could tell. It might be someone outside the home, like maybe their best friend's mom or a trusted aunt or grandparent, a school counselor. So they have a plan in their head of what they could do. Also, I have had cases where I actually couldn't charge any crimes because the child did such a good job of getting themselves out of the situation where somebody was putting their hands on the child's thigh and working their way up the child's thigh. And the kid's like, I got to go to the bathroom. And they take off and go lock themselves in the bathroom and call their mom or something to come pick them up. I can't charge that because that's not meeting a statute, even though we all as adults know what their intentions were. It's frustrating that I can't charge it, but at the same time, it makes me very happy for that child and, and proud of them that they did that good of a job. It's great to have your kids have plans like that in their mind. Because when you're faced with sexual assault behavior like that, um, it's very common in sexual abuse and sexual assault for victims to freeze. People always think of fight or flight, but it's not fight or flight. It's fight, flight, or freeze. And it happens so much in sexual assault because they just kind of are like in this loop of like, what's going on? What do I do? What do I do? And they don't know and they stay there. But if you have a plan in your head that it might be easier to break out of that and, you know, have somewhere that you can go in your mind, like, okay, well, I'm going to do this to get out of this situation. It's such an interesting thing that you bring up there. I have a good friend whose wife was raped in high school. Mm -hmm. by her high school boyfriend. Okay. 
but they grew up in a very high purity culture mm-hmm. where not having sex until you're married is the most important thing, which again, that is an important thing for most people of faith. However, it was so ingrained in her that when she was raped by her boyfriend, she didn't report to her parents or her youth group or any of her friends because she thought that having sex would be the worst crime more so than being raped. Right. That he that she'd be in trouble exactly. because she had had sex, whether or not she exactly. participated. And, it, and, yeah. and this didn't come out until years, years, years sure. and years later. But it's an interesting balance to be able to talk to your children about just sex as a whole, but mm-hmm. also inappropriate touching, these kind of things. Right. Because obviously nobody goes into that thinking, oh, that's the best conversation I want to have with my children today. Right. But it could be the very thing that helps protect them from getting abused. Or all of our kids have influence over friends. And you never know when they can put that influence on a friend Mm -hmm. that then can use that information as well. If you've had that conversation with them and they become aware of a classmate that is going through that, being molested at home, being abused in some way at home, or you know, somewhere else, they might then tell an adult because you've had that conversation with them and then they can get help for that classmate. Whereas maybe they wouldn't normally tell, but since you've kind of given them a little education in that area, then they might come forward. To any parents listening, especially younger parents, I know it's painful. I know it's hard, especially nobody wants to talk about sex with their kids. It's hard. It's uncomfortable, but you might be protecting your child. In the same way too, it's good to teach your child the actual names of body parts. That way, if they come home and say, hey, mom, neighbor Fred let me pet his puppy. And mom's like, oh, great. Not knowing, well, that's what Fred was telling her his penis was called, his, his puppy. You yeah. know, It's important that... They can communicate and articulate these things if something does happen yes. to them. Yeah. Has that been a frustrating thing for you with dealing with some children is finding ways that they can articulate the trauma that's come against them? Junebrook does a really good job of that. I'm trained in forensic interviewing as well. We've gotten more towards having all the forensic interviews done there now when possible. They do a really good job and they have, it. sometimes a child has trouble articulating that. The embarrassment factor, they were taught not to talk about those or things. Shame. What yep. shame that they're feeling. So um, if they have trouble saying what happened, there's a big chart of paper that they can draw out what happened or forensic drawings of They're kind of like a vague outline of a child's body at different ages. And they can use that to maybe circle where they were touched, what body part the other person used to touch them there, that kind of thing to help get that information out. And we use whatever terminology the child calls that body part. That's what we use. We have two members here at State Street that I know very well who are abused in churches. It's one of our kind of motivating factors for making sure that this is a safe place. Mm -hmm. Our volunteers have background checks, and most importantly even, that rooms have two adults in them when they're children in there. And the the adults need to not have any kind of relationship that will preclude them from telling. Windows and doors, all of these kind Mm -hmm. of things, because it's vitally important to protect our kids. It's been my experience. This isn't true with many churches, but some churches don't take it as seriously as they should. In this these two cases I'm thinking of, the people in the church never got arrested. They were essentially just told not to come back mm-hmm. and they went to other churches. And I feel like there's there needs to be 
a church to movement that also engages these things that are happening in the confines of our churches. What do you think about that? Yes, I have you know, always raised in the church and I'm still a Christian. I've been around churches my whole life and everything, but I, I have been disappointed sometimes, especially early on when I began investigating these cases. I, I will say that I think the churches I've dealt with in recent years, they have gotten better. There's been an awareness brought forward of mandatory reporting and that kind of thing. But it really used to be very hard to, it, you would be behind the eight ball when you get a case involving a church because the church would try to, um, they'd almost like circle the wagon around their, you know, this deal, person and deal with it internally a lot of times. Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, well, you know, this isn't true. So, we're, you know, that's part of it. They would, I think when a lot of Christians, if they've lived a relatively unscathed life, tend to be naive. I know I was very naive as to how rampant sexual molestation is. It's amazing how much it goes on. People tend to be naive to this happening and they are very defensive of if it's someone I know, they could not have done that. That's been a problem a few times in the past where it's maybe you don't want the offender to know this has been reported because there are things you could do to help collect evidence before they get the information that they're under investigation, that, you know, the church will have a big meeting and, and talked with them or they'll, the fam families or churches will do this sometimes where they want to have a big meeting with the offender and the victim in the same room and, and talk about it all together. And that's just so horrible to do to someone if you're assuming that this is true. Uh, poor what a horrible way to yeah treat the victim. If there's any victims that have not been confident enough to tell anybody about the abuse they've went through, but they're listening and they want to do that, who do they come and talk to? Most crimes are investigated by jurisdiction. And in the case of sex crimes, that is where the offense actually happened at. If it occurred in LaPorte City, it would be the LaPorte City Police Department. If it occurred in Michigan City, Michigan City Police Department, and so forth. Our jurisdictions aren't necessarily right where the city ends and that kind of thing. It's a little bit complicated, but that gives you a general guideline. And then if it's the county, it would be the sheriff's office. There are statutes of limitation for most more serious sex crimes that involve penetration of some kind or um, actual sex acts. The current law in the books is that it's when the victim, prior to when the victim turns 31 years of age. Having said that, though, the law did change, I think back in 94 or 95. Prior to that, child molesting was only an A felony if the offender used a deadly weapon in the commission of the offense. Because <laughs> um, A felonies can be charged at any time. But since prior to the law changing, it wasn't an A felony, then we I, I've had that situation recently with a, a victim that we finally, after investigating, had enough evidence to prove what happened to him back in the 90s and found out the hard way looking up the laws and everything that it's past the statute of limitations because of the way the law was written. And it, it was just the ignorance of the time because I would hope most adults know that child molesters don't use deadly weapons typically to molest a child because they don't have to. Absolutely. To get compliance, you know, they don't they don't need to hold a gun to their head or a knife to their throat to get the child to do what they're the child's scared of them anyway. You've been in law enforcement for 14 years. What's changed since you started? I uh, we're seeing a lot more, I would say crimes against children reported in the last few years than before. Part of that, I think, is 
due to the Department of Child Services hotline and to the people being aware of mandatory reporting. I think most people are aware that teachers and counselors and pastors and, you know, personnel are required to report if they have reason to believe a child has been abused or neglected. I think most people are not aware that it actually is everyone is a mandated reporter by the law. So I, I don't know if that's some of the reason why it's increasing so much. It's also the jail is way more complicated than it used to be in, in years past. There's a lot more staff required there, um, a lot more regulations for you have to do things this way, you have to do things that way. There are less resources for people with mental problems. There are fewer facilities for them as far as treatment options available, which ultimately that ends up being police that have to deal with them usually. Have there ever been a case where you've investigated where just by sheer luck, you got lucky on something that it worked your way and you were able to find the piece of information you were looking for in the investigation to kind of wrap this up? Well, there is one one thing that sticks out in my mind, although it wasn't, this one isn't necessarily, I mean, it, it, there was a sex offense element, but this was an adult that was basically, she was tied up and tortured by her husband, sexually assaulted as well, because she was divorcing him and he didn't like that. And he intended to torture her and kill her. He had planned this out ahead of time and had purchased these items to do this. The reason we know that he did that is because he bought them at Cablin's <laughs> and he paid cash though, but he also used his Ace Rewards card number. So they tracked so, everything he had bought. Yes. So that just kind of... That's a... Uh, yeah. Uh, so did... Have, that was, I, he that was go, just one that was kind of He didn't go through with funny. it though. Well, he tortured her and everything, but he didn't end up killing her. He He did... Uh, shoot himself, but he didn't die. I think it's a good reminder that even people who are married can be abused by their spouses mm -hmm. yeah. sexually and it can still be rape. Yes. It's still in the state of Indiana. We, it is still rape within marriage. You can be charged with raping your spouse. It's not just an automatic given that you know, that they have to comply. You are more familiar with the laws of Indiana as it relates to sexual assault and victimization, if you had your choice, what laws need to be changed? What laws need to be added? Um, I'm really happy about some of the recent changes that uh, I've seen during the time that I've been. Um, our Indiana lawmakers have done a great job. They've changed some of the laws regarding the credit time. I don't know if the average person knows this, but usually when someone is sentenced to a prison sentence, they go down to the DOC and if they behave themselves while they're there, they get a day credit for every day they served. So a person will typically get out in approximately half the time of their sentence. They have uh, lawmakers in, in the state of Indiana have within the past few years changed it so that there are credit restricted offenses, including child molesting, although rape is not one of them. Um, child so molesting. So would you change that? Would you add rape? I would add, yeah, I would add rape to, the, to that one. I'm very happy about the child molesting one that they changed it. So now if you're sentenced to child molesting, you have to serve, I believe it's 85% of your sentence. 
you're not able to get that sweet deal of serving half the time. Any other laws that you think, okay, I really wish we had the ability to do this because it makes no sense to you that you are not allowed to do that? Um, Some of the wording of some of the laws that I wish were changed relates to sexting or sexual battery. The wording in those statutes includes that, you know, this or that was done for sexual gratification or for, um, for sexual purposes. In my experience, it's been difficult element to prove that because you have sexting crimes going on in high school all the time. I mean, a lot of juveniles is are a, sending naked pictures of each other. You know, is it a crime for a 14 year old to send to another 14 year old? Yes. Okay. But they changed the law so that it's no longer a felony production of child pornography. It is now called, oh, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's a, a misdemeanor and it's under a different statute. Something I can't, to definitely- I can't think of it off the top of my head, but but it's, it's a misdemeanor and it's just, but it's so rampant. I mean- As I say, it's something <laughs> to definitely talk to your kids about though. I mean, yes. as a practice as a whole, but also that yeah. it isn't- without its consequences. Right. Yeah. And I guess one thing I I do wish we had maybe would be a revenge porn statute because this is where this one comes into play is so a high schooler sends a picture of themselves to their boyfriend or girlfriend while they're dating and it's a nude picture. Technically that's child pornography because they're under the age of 18. And then, and it's not prosecuted under the child pornography statute as long as certain conditions apply. You know, it's consensual. They're in a personal relationship. Um, They're not more than four years apart. I mean, there's a whole list of things. So they break up and then the significant other shares that picture with other people. Now that is where it does fall under the felony statute, but the wording of it is such that you have to prove it was done for sexual purposes. And a lot of times it's not, it was done kind of for revenge or. How do you prove it's for sexual purposes? Right, exactly. Cause it's based on, I, I don't know just how this it's guy naked, used this picture and, yeah. or this girl uses this picture. And it's my understanding just in conversations with the prosecutor's office and stuff that the courts have not allowed you to just make that assumption that just because they're naked, it was for sexual purposes. I mean. So it's it, a law it's, that's really hard to charge. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If so, we, I mean, cause it really, it would fall more or under a revenge porn statute, but we don't have one in the state of Indiana. What's the biggest misconception people have of what you do? Well, if they watch the cop TV shows, <laughs> they probably think my day-to-day work is a lot more exciting than it actually is. They probably think I get a case and work it and I'm able to just like do everything I need to do on it. Then once that's done, then I get another case. And that's not the way it works. It's a large part of what I do is actually prioritization because it's literally like an assembly line of cases just keep coming in. Like I said, right now, I'm, I have a little bit of a lull right, right now. I'm getting new cases, but not at a um, a rate that I am just freaking that out. That you over. can't manage. Yeah. yeah. When they just when they come in so fast, you do have to prioritize and and be able to evaluate a case and see, I mean, they're all serious and they're all heartbreaking and they all deserve all of your attention, but you can't do everything on every case. It's just not humanly possible. So you have to be able to evaluate, like, is my time spent, well, doing all these things on this case? Is my time, you know, can I steal some time from this case to give it to this case? Um, Because I need more time on this case. And probably they don't realize, just as a police officer in general, how much typing we do. (laughs) 
I'm probably aging myself. It's not, I don't know if it's called typing anymore, but, um, Are you, but we, is like, that how we're funding you? I do you guys still have typewriters? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> typewriters. Yeah. They, uh, we do a lot of writing reports. Yeah. Like if you had a TV show about me, just like the whole eight hours would be just me stand, standing there typing. Yeah. Cause I'm <laughs> sure report. there's, I'm sure there's certain days where you don't feel like you made as much progress on a case as yeah. you wanted to. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's the hard thing about, I think any job that you're not manufacturing something every day is you don't get the satisfaction of seeing what you built that day. Like when I used to be a stay at home mom. That was a big one there because everything you do as a stay-at-home mom gets undone within 20 minutes. That's true. I thought that was only my kids. Nope. Now, there's more to you as a police officer than just you do more than just sex crimes. Though you are one of the only officers... Uh, one of the only detectives that do sex crimes. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I do want to just applaud you because I think that's a that's a very difficult job that you do every day with very, very little fanfare. Thank you. I want to talk about another type of crime because it's going to be a topic over the next year. What do you think about hate crimes? Our state senator, Mike Behechik, is actually championing Indiana to have hate crimes legislation. We don't have any hate crimes legislation right now. Mm -hmm. Have any opinions on that? I know when we fill out our um, RMS is the computer program that we use for reporting and things like that. And the FBI does collect data on that. Like what, what are the motivating factors here in these crimes um, was race or religion or anything like that a motivating factor in the crime? I mean, absolutely. I think it should be what we call an enhancer on the statutes where it makes it, you know, if you and I get in a fist fight at a bar, Nate, because, you know, we're, we have words and we both punch each other in the jaw, that is a different battery than punching somebody or, or even if just only one of us punched. Okay, let me I'll even it out a little bit more. But in the, that's a way different crime than somebody that goes up to somebody and punches them because they don't like someone of that color or race or sexual orientation. Talk a little bit about what it's like being a woman in a male-dominated profession. You are one of two officers right now outside of the jail and support staff at the sheriff's office. Have you noticed that? Do people notice that? Has it been a helpful culture? Um, what have you seen? I mean, I've never felt discriminated against at all at the sheriff's office. I mean, there were definitely, when I was trying to become an officer, they were, there was a competitiveness there and stuff. And and I don't know that I can say that wasn't because of my gender or anything. It was just people want, wanted the job more than me and, or, or they wanted to get the job ahead of me. And I don't think that... As a detective, I'm involved in the background investigations that we do for the hiring process when people apply to be police officers. And there, I can honestly say there's not discrimination going on in those applications. We just are not seeing a lot of females apply. Do you think more female officers are needed? I think it's important that we have female officers. I don't think it's like, I don't have in my mind like, oh, well, we need to have 50 percent of us be females or anything like that. Females come at the job in a slightly different way than males. I know when I was on patrol, one of my strong points was maybe de-escalating a situation and that sometimes takes longer. There are other ways to deal with situations. You can, if you're a strong enough person physically, you can just handle the situation immediately by just taking control of the person and being like, no, you're going to listen to me. And you can just like muscle them to 
get in your car or whatever. I mean, I think it's important to have females on the department for our different perspective and to help balance things. There's, there's always a balance between um, whether it's in a marriage or, you know, at a company, at the sheriff's office, anything. It's great to have that balance of the different perspectives that males and females bring to things. Who are the leaders and the people that inspire you? My number one person that I would say I looked up to was my mom's mom. She was just an amazing woman. She was working full time in the 40s. She was a strong woman, but also very loving. She was confident and she kept herself in really good physical shape and cared about her appearance and everything. I mean, she was something else. Even in her 80s, she would get down on the floor and give my son's you know, piggyback rides on the, you know, right, riding around on her back when she's like 83 years old. She was just wicked sense of humor too. A little bit of a dirty sense of humor, but. My favorite people. Yeah. yeah. So she's one and my parents, they both worked very hard in service professions. My dad was a minister. My mom was a teacher. And I think that's why I've chosen a profession that's a, a service profession. I think a lot of middle-class people end up doing those kind of things, nursing, teaching, being a, a police officer. They're all kind of related in the, the way you, you're trying to help society. How do you not get cynical doing a job like you do every day and not project onto the world that everyone is like the people that you are investigating? I mean, it, it's difficult. I have to make a concerted effort to surround myself with positive influences. And I do work with amazing people in the sheriff's office in general and in the detective bureau. I mean, I, I just love my coworkers. They're, you know, we're a great group of people and that helps. No matter what crime you're dealing with, it still can make you cynical and, you know, you're dealing with people doing horrible things to other people. So I look for outside things, and that includes the church. I've always maintained uh, membership in a church and tried to surround myself with people, incl including my family. My family's great too, but that are positive influences. I think because of my Christian background too, I don't think of anybody as being evil. There is evil in the world. But I don't think like a specific person is evil. I look at somebody that's done horrible, horrible things and really damaged another person's life. And I don't necessarily, I don't know. I, I just think they've been led, led astray and have allowed their weaknesses to ruin their life as well as other people's lives. And, and it's really hard, it's right? It's kind but of a perspective, I guess. I mean, it's kind of the command of our faith, right? Yes. Is to see the image of God in another, even when it's really, really difficult, yeah. like loving your enemies. Right. I know I had a, a case that went to trial a while back and the guy got a significant amount of time and everything. And of course I was glad that we won the case and got justice for that victim. But at the same time, it, it's not a celebration moment because I knew from the background investigation of the suspect what a horrible childhood he had had and what, you know, he'd had a really rough life and everything. And it's, it's so it's just, it's sad. It was sad all the way around. It was sad that uh, what he did to her. And it, I guess the only positive there was that we stopped that from happening, you know, to her or anybody else because he's going to be in prison the rest of his life. It's just sad that his life was ruined it's and that hard. he allowed his life to be ruined because you, you, those were choices he made. You touched on something that my wife and I were talking about recently that's really hard to articulate empathy for people who do wrong. Mm -hmm. 
because we can live in a society and in a culture that retributive justice is the best kind of justice. And we do want punishment, especially uh, for people who have done things that are wrong. And we definitely want to protect those who have been victimized. But I do think that it's good and right for us to also look at how someone got to where they're at Mm -hmm. because they are also products of other people who have done things to them right and their story has worked itself out in maybe even horrific ways right but i still think it's good and right to ask ourselves to find empathy at times ultimately when we are all judged ultimately we will be judged i think on how we did with what we were given and we don't all start on even playing fields. You know, I, I feel very blessed that I was born in this country <laughs> to Christians, to people that are still married. You know, that I wasn't abused as a child. I, I mean, I, I had plenty to eat, um, too much to eat <laughs> at times, you know. Um, and I've always had a, a nice house to live in. Um, I guess just because of that, you have to see that people, I mean, people to make decisions that make their situation worse. But, you know, that's, I guess it's just not up for me to judge that other person. Last question. What brings you hope? My faith gives me hope. Um, it's, it's hard to have hope with the whole like um, political <laughs> situation right now. And um, just with some of the things that I see, but um, I do have hope just because I think, Humans throughout history have the pendulums kind of swings back and forth, however, and no matter how bad things get, you know, it's going to, it'll come back. And um, I, I think we will be able to redeem ourselves. And In the end, we may have hiccups. We may have hard seasons. Mm-hmm. They might not be perfect. And obviously it never has been in America for many groups of people, but we will get better. Right. So I want to thank you so much for being here on the podcast. And uh, I encourage you guys that are listening to help those who may be struggling with assault or victimization. And you never know. You never know who you meet, who has been abused, who has been uh, traumatized. So try to be kind to everyone and love as best as you can. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 